Hi folks, Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer inviting you to sit back and get ready for one of the most uplifting programs anywhere on the air. Growing Bolder is pretty much a playbook for life. Sure, you will hear from big time actors, iconic rock stars, and world-renowned experts, but you'll also hear from seemingly ordinary people who decided they wanted more out of their life. They started Growing Bolder and ended up living in a way they never thought possible. And the best part? You can do it, too. Man, are you right about that, Mark? And today, the incredible story of a man who had both his arms crushed and he fought back to become a bodybuilding champion. Hey, remember the Lennon sisters? They've been stars for over 50 years. Well, Kathy Lennon will tell us how they held it together through some very dark times and are still performing today. And boom, boom, out go the lights. Guitar wizard Pat Travers talks about his fight to survive in the music business. Oh, and you'll hear from one special guest whose acting career has been a virtual dynasty. And that's what we mean when we say this is Growing Bolder. Oh, I know you recognize that theme song, and we are about to interview... One of our favorite stars from that show about the only thing that we like better than gobbling up some treats from recipes shared by one of our all-time favorites would be some candid Hollywood stories to go with it on the side. And that's exactly what you get in a great new book that's part cookbook and part memoir. Yeah, and the author slash star is one of the most beautiful women to ever grace the stage and the screen. She's an Emmy-nominated, People's Choice, Golden Globe-winning actress who has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Of course, we all came to know her for her roles as Audra Barkley in The Big Valley and the gorgeous Crystal Carrington in Dynasty. The book is called Recipes for Life, and we are very excited to welcome the one and only Linda Evans. Hi, Linda. Well, hi. Good morning. Boy, we're thrilled to have you. And, of course, we probably all have this vision of you living in a home that looks pretty much like uh, the one that you lived in in Dynasty. You've got pool boys out back. Uh, Where are you now? What's going on? I've got, I'm on 70 acres in Washington State, and I just I'm looking out my window at the most glorious trees. The sun is shining. The birds are all around. The squirrels are trying to get the bird seed. It's beautiful here where I live. Life is good. Mm-hmm. See, no Mark, complaint. Mark, you thought she lived like Dynasty when she actually lives like the Big Valley. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, hey, Linda, let's take care of some business right off the top. Tell us about the book. Was it your idea to combine the food and the flashbacks? Where did that come from? That was my idea because they've you know, always asked me if I would do my memoir. And also I had wanted to do a cookbook during Dynasty and actually – had um, was going to do it with Simon and Schuster, and I got so busy I couldn't do it. So it was always an unfulfilled dream of mine because cooking is my passion and I love it, and feeding people is my next passion. <laughs> so I wanted to think if I could combine them together, and it was tricky business because I wanted them to be able to read the book without looking at the recipes if they didn't mind. And I think we found a beautiful way that they could skip them if they want or include them if they want. And, you know, Linda, it works well together because just like the cookbook part, the memoir section leaves us wanting more because you're one of those people. We look at your photograph and instantly... Linda, you can see the strength and elegance that that we think that you must have always had, but you've had your share of challenges and heartache that started, I guess, when your parents' lives began to spin out of control because of alcohol, and you don't shy away from those stories. No, because I think that we're... um we're forged by those things, you know. That's a part of what makes us strong in life uh, are the things that don't work <laughs> and that you find a way to get beyond with it. And uh, everyone has their ups and downs. You know, people think that when you're a movie star or a television star that your life is different than their life. And I very much wanted them to know when they read this book that we're all the same. We all have problems, and we all, thank God, get to overcome them and get stronger from them. Is it fair to say that uh, that the recipe portion of the book is kind of eclectic? 
how did you choose what recipes you'd put in there? Well, I chose them from my life because food and cooking and people have all been so intertwined in my life. Um, and so I wanted, and I mean, I have collected some of the best recipes that just everyone loves. So I thought, why not share this lifelong collection with people as well as my personal photos? You see how many photos are in there? Normally people have like a few in the middle. I have 70 some pictures scattered throughout to show the times as well. And so I chose the best of the times or a, or a recipe that would reflect the person that I'm talking about. And, and Linda, I like think... Barbara Stanwyck, you know, I did the hobo steak because we would go to Chasen's and have that every single time we went there. And so it became our dinner together. So in her name, I put that in there. And Linda, it goes all the way back to your mom's hot dog stew. <laughs> Yeah, and by the way, people laugh and they go, oh, my God, hot dogs, too. How good could that be? It's fabulous. It has <laughs> such flavor. You won't even believe it. And when you don't have a lot of money, see, I wanted to also write in this book recipes that people didn't have much money could could afford to make, and I wanted to have some recipes that were simple as well as people who could cook, you know, kind of well and those who really knew how to cook. I tried to think of every level of every person who might want this book. Well, you mentioned uh, your friendship with Barbara Stanwyck. You were also good friends with John Wayne, and you even included one of his favorite treats in the book. Right. I have two of his in the book because the chili cheese ca uh, casserole that is in there was his personal favorite, so much so that when he would go on location to do a film, his wife, Pilar, would write the recipe down. He'd take it on a piece of paper, fold it up, put it in his shirt pocket, and take it with him so they could make it for him when he was on location. It's it's amazing, and, and the, the the incidents and the recipes, and the, the, especially the incidents, Linda, things that we would never have guessed about you. And I, it's a strange question, but one we sort of know the answer to. Linda, have you ever been in jail? <laughs> well, just fingerprinted the mug. Yes, I, I during Big Valley, by the way, the, uh, during the the off season of Big Valley, which I just thought was a horrifying thing. Of, Certainly, thank God, if it were today, happening today, they would have had it on the front page of the newspaper. But thank God, in those days, there was some privacy. And I was, only because I was with my girlfriend, who's my dearest, oldest friend, and a policeman stopped us and said I was going too slow on the freeway. And she told him he was full of <laughs> and he didn't like that. So, <laughs> so he managed to find an old parking ticket from MGM Studios when I was under contract and just constantly had parking tickets. And I never knew that one slipped through the cracks, but he did. And therefore, I went off to jail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You know, we all, we all have this, this image, this expectation that uh, Hollywood actresses, at least the, you know, the superstars, don't get along. And, and in fact, you, you mentioned the fact that Bo Derek actually steals your husband away. Ursula Andrus was married to him right before you. And somehow you've managed to uh, become friends or remain friends with both. <clears throat> well, I, I certainly wouldn't have if I didn't like them, and that was the kicker. I was all prepared to hate Ursula because I thought she was coming back to get John, and when she showed up at the door and I opened it up and she asked if he was home and a big tear rolled out of her eye, I thought, oh, God, I like this woman. Now what am I going to do about this? And Bo, I had worked with um, to get her ready for the film that she was going to do with John. I had no sense that they were going to fall in love, that, that I would just be away for a few weeks and he would tell me he was in love with her. I, I had no sense of that, but I certainly it wasn't her fault. I, it was John, you know, he obviously was the one that, that made this relationship happen. And, you know, as soon as the anger and the sadness uh, was dealt with on my part, and I turned my mind to me and my life, uh, and my life started moving around, you know, and I met somebody. I, you know, I look back and I want, I loved him so much. He was just the love of my life at the time. So why can't we be friends? And uh, and why can't she be my friend? And, and by the way, it'll be her birthday very shortly, and I'll be calling her and saying happy birthday. You know, you've got such an interesting philosophy of life, Linda, because not only do you try to live by the golden rule, you also believe in doing unto yourself as you would do unto others. What do you mean by that? 
that means that women oftentimes are caretakers and take care of everyone and leave themselves out. Um, But later in life, one of the great things about staying alive is you get to get wiser and you get to learn. I learned that I would be a lot happier if I also loved myself and honored myself the way I do honor others. And that's something I talk to women's groups about. I go around the country talking about aging gracefully and health issues and really understanding self-love. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful journey because you stop looking outside of yourself to be happy. You know, Linda, I think you've touched upon it, but much of what we do here is talk to people about growing bolder, about remaining relevant, about reinventing themselves, about finding ways to to create a life of significance as they get older. What can you tell us? What can you share with us that you've learned uh, about aging and, and, and how you can do it in the right way? Well, there are many, many topics that have to do with this, so I'll just, let's see, what could we get into? I, I think the most important thing is Betty Davis said it ain't for sissies, and that's the truth. Just physically what you have to deal with, you know, and, but you, we got to get past those things. We've got we've to work out. We, I walk an hour every morning so that I can eat what I want. My metabolism goes up. My heart stays healthy. I do a little strength training to be strong because we're living to be 70, 80, 90, 100 years of age now. So we've got to keep our bodies going. And... Also, we've got to love these years and not think that the best part of our lives is over, but just ahead of us because we have so much that we can do. And now it's our time. The children are raised, the grandchildren. You've got to go out and say, what are the unfinished dreams? I learned to ski, you know, two years ago. Um, I did that play with Joan Collins, and I had a fear of being on the stage so that I could overcome it and was so proud of myself. I went to Africa last year and uh, lived for a week with the Maasai to understand them and to understand more about life. I mean, doing things I've never done before. My best friend, Bunky, that got me arrested, um, has macular degeneration, and it was very difficult for her to lose most of the sight in her eyes, but she's formed a band with eight other people who never played anything, and they are so good. They began playing at senior citizen homes, and now they're playing for the Yacht Club and the Civic Center, and they're little stars in their town. I mean, they are fabulous, and, and you know, someone who is a sculptress now plays the bass, and, and they take such pride in developing a musical mind. And, Linda, your life has been truly remarkable because of your willingness to face the fears you have and to live fearlessly. The book is called Recipes for Life, our thanks to the always fascinating and inspiring Linda Evans. In a moment, how a terrible accident shattered his arms but didn't stop him from embracing his dreams, this is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with an accredited chest pain center and heart failure program, as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Bill Schaefer here with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. Up now, we have one of those stories that makes you say, you know, maybe I don't have any excuses. Yeah, not when you hear how some people actually step up and face the obstacles that life is going to throw eventually at every one of us. Michael Ives didn't just survive his ordeal. He stepped up to thrive in the face of it. Good attitude, right? Each of these bodybuilders is over the age of 50, Each has a remarkable story to tell, but none quite like Mike Ives. His doctors say it's a miracle that he's even alive. It happened when he was 16, at work, loading cardboard scraps into an industrial baler. Someone had called me, and uh, I went and turned as I was pushing the paper into the machine, and as fast as I could turn back, I knew it was the end. I knew 
I knew my life was over at that point. His arms got caught, stuck between beams the size of railroad ties that clamped down and crushed them. It actually lifted me a foot off the ground and took me in. He screamed for help, but no one heard, so there he hung. And I just laid there moaning. There was no more grabs of, of like yelling or screaming. It was gone. It was out of me. 30 minutes later, they found him, wrapped him in a blanket, and drove him 30 miles to the nearest hospital. To them, it was the most severe injury that they've ever seen. I remember laying on that gurney in that operating room, but I can hear my father in the background crying, and, and I can hear someone telling him we, we need to amputate his arms at the elbows. Yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget hearing that. The chance of him ever using them are 50-50, so we can't guarantee that he's ever going to use them. And so my father took that chance. And against all odds, his arms were saved. But his recovery was slow and agonizing. The pain was constant and unrelenting. Sometimes I just wanted my arms off. I just, I, because of the pain that I was living with and, you know, taking painkillers on, on, on a, a, you know, somewhat basics under doctor supervision. I, I just, I felt, you know, it was, it was tearing me up inside. And I kind of, that's when I finally, like a bell rang in my head and I just said, you know, I got to do, do it my way. The only good thing he'd gotten in his life came from hard work. That, he thought, was his only chance now. I picked up a magazine with Arnold Schwarzenegger on it and, and I looked at that picture and I said, wow, you know, and I took it home and I read and that's where it started. That's where the seed was planted. He bought a set of weights, and against his doctor's advice, Ives began his own rehabilitation. And they told me, no, 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 you, know, you, you don't want to work out. It's not good for the tendons and the ligaments and all that stuff. And I kind of just went against the will of them and not telling them. Why did you do that? Weren't you worried that you were going to make them worried. worse? I was worried, but I, I, when I, I started seeing results. I started looking at what, how my body was developing. Sure enough, his arms were getting stronger, but so was the pain. I'd wake up in the middle of the night crying. My arms would just, would just kill me. And I would just squeeze them and rub them and, you know, try to... And, and I figured something out. He figured the more he focused on his workouts, the less he'd think about the pain. He became driven, so much so that he entered his very first bodybuilding contest. But... This time, it was his hopes that were crushed. Didn't place, didn't place. I went home and I cried, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, but it was weird because that night I had this, this just crazy dream that they, they came out on stage and gave me that first place. And it just, it's something that stuck with me. I'd be working construction, digging footers, and that dream would just pop up. I'd have to stop for five minutes and I'd see myself getting that first place trophy and it just never, it never went away from my life. And just like that, he no longer saw himself as the boy with the shattered arms. He was a bodybuilder in pursuit of a dream which finally came true at the age of 50. I just wanted to bust down on my knees and cry. And I, I guess I just held all that pride in, and, and, but I'll never forget it. Show the best pose, fellas. You know, I watched the video constantly just to see how I looked. It was, for him, triumph over tragedy, victory over all the people who never believed. That's another thing I like to just kind of point out. The people who downed me and told me, face reality, you're not going to be nothing. You know, and, you know, that, I think that threw a lot of fuel on my fire. You know, I, I, I'll never forget all that. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll never pinpoint to the people who said things because I forgive them, you know. And, and, but, you know, it's, it's things you just don't forget. He's also never forgotten how much it meant to have someone who did believe. The biggest person I want to thank in my life for this, you know, of course, is God, but my mother. Because my mother said something to me when I was a kid. She said, Michael, you can be anything, anything you want. And she was right. Now Michael Ives is an inspiration to anyone facing insurmountable odds. I've taken the route as, as far as being a natural athlete and a natural bodybuilder because to me it's all about longevity. It's about living longer. It's about feeling better. It's, and, and, and 
you know, we're only here on borrowed time and, and you know, I'm just trying to slow the process of aging. You see, he wants to be around to make a difference for as many as possible. So, like Mike, they can feel that they've led a life well-lived. I never wanted to be the greatest. I just wanted to be better than what I was, you know. Yeah, at our applause, a simple but powerful motivation. Congratulations, Mike Elias, because not only have you achieved your goal, you've smashed it by a mile. This is Growing Bolder. Way too often health news, it's so full of disappointment, telling us that our favorite food surely lead us down the road to ruin. But today, that's not necessarily the case, because today you might feel like proposing a toast. Let's find out why from registered dietitian and nutritionist Dr. Susan Mitchell with good news, huh? Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Hi, foodie friends. Red or white Merlot or Chardonnay? I'm often asked the question, is drinking wine really good for me? Well, here's what the science says. If you have one to two drinks of alcohol per day, and in this case of wine, where a drink is equal to five ounces, by the way, there are health benefits, which include lowering the risk for heart disease and decreasing the risk for dementia. Wine seems to lower inflammation in the body by measurement of C-reactive protein in the blood, while it modestly increases the good cholesterol, HDL. For some people, a glass or two of wine helps to reduce stress. Well, what about like white wine? Is that just for us boozers then? I mean, does it have not have the value? Does it mean that, say, if you drink a white, you're not drinking it for your health? In other words, whatever it is that makes red wine healthy, is that the only thing that makes wine beneficial? No, because as we just mentioned, it's the case of the alcohol itself that has those health benefits. And then on top of that, Bill, red wine has a high level of antioxidants such as tannins and resveratrol, which is found in the blue, purple, red grape family. So one glass of red wine has similar antioxidant activity to two glasses of tea. And it's a basic food in the Mediterranean diet, and red wine specifically reduces blood clotting, dilates blood vessels, and increases HDL cholesterol. The grapes that you like and taste of different red wines is all personal preference. In fact, if you're not a wine drinker, purple grape juice is a fairly good substitute. Who knew, right? (laughs) I'll drink to that. Anyway, that is Dr. Susan Mitchell. Great information. Coming up, a true rock guitar hero joins us, and the next thing you know, boom, boom, out go the lights. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. No kidding, I'm ready to fight. I've been looking for my baby all night. And if I get her in my sight, boom, boom, out go the lights. Oh, man, this program just woke up, and I'm talking about on the right way, too. You recognize that song? Well, if you do, that means you're a fan of one of the greatest guitar players ever. If you don't recognize it, we're going to turn you on to something very good. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and you're listening to Growing Bold. Uh, you know, Bill, you're exactly right. This guy really should be a household name. Turns out, though, he was much better at being a musician than he was at greasing the right wheels at the record company. We kind of like that about him. So he had a roller coaster ride of up and downs, uh, enough that nobody would have blamed him if he would have just packed it all in. But not only is music his passion, he's also embraced technology. He's learned to be independent enough to bypass the recording industry altogether. And he has a new record out now called Blues on Fire. We are thrilled to welcome Pat Travers. Hey, Pat. Hi, guys. I hope I can live up to that amazing intro. Cheers. Uh, man, we're just trying to give you your due. Yeah, uh, thank you for emailing it in. It was great. <laughs> yeah, I, you got it. It was a couple of times, you know, but that's okay. You yeah, we want the, uh, the essence of it. We want to talk about what a great guitar player you are, but before we do that, let's go oh, back to— I just, just, just before 
before you get going, the version of that song, Boom Boom Out Go to Lights, that you played was, I think, from my very first record. And, and just coincidentally, someone posted on my Facebook page the original version by Little Walter from about 1951. And it's almost identical. It's really amazing. Wow. I just thought I'd mention that. It's a good tune. Let, let's take you back to another great guitar uh, player. Is it true that you actually had a chance to see Jimi Hendrix? Uh, how old were you, and what kind of impression did that make? Okay, yeah, it was uh, how lucky was I, um, number one, to you know be of the age when I was taking up guitar, when all of the iconic guitar players were around and doing their first albums. You know, not just Jimi Hendrix, but Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, Johnny Winter, Carlos Santana. I mean, there was just, uh, uh, you know, it was a real uh, cluster, you know. But um, I remember hearing either Purple Haze or Foxy Lady on the AM radio. And just, you know, when I was possibly 13 or maybe even, yeah, I guess I was about 13. I'd only had a guitar for about a year. And... uh it was mind-blowing for me. I, I just had never heard anything like that up to that point. And to tell you the truth, really haven't heard anything since then either to quite match it. But, um, you know, me and my, my school buddy, Stephen Peacock, who was a drummer, and we were just loved Hendrix and Cream, and we found out Jimi Hendrix was coming to Ottawa, Canada, which is where I was living as a boy then, and playing at the Capitol Theater, which is a wonderful movie theater downtown Ottawa. So we got tickets for the uh, second show, and I was like 12th row aisle, and, and I uh, bragged to all my school buddies that if he started to break his guitar, I was going to get a piece, because, of course, we'd all seen the clips from Monterey and thought that he did that every night, you know. And uh, so he was doing Wild Thing, which was sort of his encore song. And, uh, of course, he started doing some of his histrionics and, sort of humping the amps with the guitar and, and then throwing the guitar on the floor, but not really breaking it or anything. But anyway, I kind of lost my mind and, and ran down to the front of the stage, and there was no security, and it was just the stage was only waist high, and, and there he was. I mean, he was right there in front of me, and he had the guitar on the ground, and and uh, he'd broken a string, and it popped forward, and the kid next to me grabbed that string, and it was able to move the guitar along the stage, and it was in my grasp, so I grabbed it with both hands like a fiend and pulled it and of course the strap was still around jimmy's neck and he's going no no man be cool be cool and i'm like ah i'm just out of my mind you know and then uh, the out of the the stage right wings i see this guy tromping toward me but i'm still not figuring it out and all of a sudden smack he pops me on the jaw which sort of snaps me out of this craziness i was in and then the real melee broke out there, and somebody <laughs> stole Jimmy's hat, which he got back. But, you know, and the show was over. And <laughs> so that was it. And Pat Travers says, wow, <laughs> this is the career for me. Yeah, I, I, well, I don't know. And the weird thing is, years later, you know, he, he kept a diary. And in his diary entry for that night, it says, got to meet Joni Mitchell. I mean, that's it, you know, like crazy young Punks like me grabbing his guitar was just a you know a normal, not even worthy of mention experience. You know, hey, great story. Uh, but let's yeah. let's focus the rest of the time on Pat Travers because we we talked at the beginning about how how you've kind of circumvented record company issues to to, to you, you'd never stop. Try before. to. It's very difficult to do that. But, but, but uh, get, you know, getting more and more into wanting to do that and figuring out ways to do it. So. Um, you know, that's something definitely long-term I'm going to do. But you know, something you always had, I mean, you, you've had a passion for the music because you never stopped touring. Uh, no matter what incarnations you had to have, man, the Pat Travers Band, you knew you were going to see a great rock show. And yeah. you, you've had a hardcore group of fans who never, ever let you go. It is amazing. You know, I do this thing on the, my Facebook page, and, and uh, you know, there's only about 26,000 of us, but... Uh, it's a very, very loyal following, and and um, it, it really is amazing some of the interactions and and people that I've actually met. You know, I mean, there was a, a guy who posted a message on my Facebook page from Edinburgh, Scotland, and I, I don't know what it was. He just seemed like a nice guy, so you know, I said, hey, why don't you come down to sound check and we'll have some dinner with the guys and everything, which he did. You know, which is kind of an awesome thing, for, I guess, for him to do as well. 
but uh, you know, without Facebook, you wouldn't have that sort of uh, that, that opportunity to have this. Uh, I mean, I'm constantly asked, "Is that really you yeah. talking and stuff?" And of course, it is. But. Pat, have have you always been uh, the optimistic guy who who you know you you could have said, "Well, you know, people aren't appreciating me enough. I'm 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 out. Forget oh, I it." Felt that way, lots of times, and felt sorry for myself and wondered why. But you know, that that's sort of something that comes and goes and. I think that's typical of most people anyway. But uh, And that's kind of what this show is about. It's about people that go through that, but because it's their passion, they stick with it, and they come out the other side like you are. And all those other guys that have fallen by the wayside, not, not Pat Travers. You know, I'm really lucky, and there's a feeling, and I'm, I'm trying to identify it more now because I'm, I'm, or quantify it more because I'm actually started to write a book about my life and times. And it's it's a feeling I get when I'm really on and I'm playing or I'm creating. I mean, it, I can get it if I'm writing sometimes. I can get it when I'm, you know, just really hot into a vocal or into a guitar solo. And it's it's really a feeling of being high, you know, like with a lot of confidence and energy and positiveness. And, and you know, it's addictive. And I think you know, I don't get it from much else but that, but playing. So, you know, I'm kind of hooked on it <laughs> in a way. And uh, it seems to come more and more now when I'm writing. And that's awesome because, you know, songs are really what it's all about. Performances are great, but songs really live on forever. And um, so I'm just finding that in the last uh, year, or this year especially, and I don't really know why, but I get that feeling, this you know, it's almost manic in a way. It's, you know, it's a really strong energy, very confident, and uh, it just feels good, you know, and all is revealed, if you know what I mean. Like sometimes, like, whole verses just come flying out as if they'd already been written, you know. You know, it is. It's perseverance. It's having a passion and doing what you love. Check him out online, pattravers.com. Check out his Facebook page. Check out his music and get to know a guy who loves what he does and does it better than anybody, Pat Travers. Thanks so much, Pat. Coming up, why one of the brightest philosophers alive today salutes procrastination and why he says you can get a lot done by putting things off. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassonSI.com. And by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Welcome back to Growing Boulder Radio. We are your host. I'm Mark. That's Bill. And, you know, we bring a lot of experts on this program who always tell you to do something, to get more exercise, to give up the foods you love, to get out and start living life. Well, our next guest is probably the most unusual we've ever had. He says, yes, you should do all those things, but you really don't have to do them right away because he is a major procrastinator. Easy for you to say. He's a distinguished professor of philosophy at Stanford University and UCAL Riverside, the author of over a hundred books and articles, a radio show host and winner of a Nobel Prize in literature. And as Mark says, he's fascinated by procrastination. In fact, he wrote an essay on the subject over 15 years ago, and there was so much uproar about it, he's gotten around (laughs) to writing a book about it called The Art of Procrastination, a guide to effective dawdling, lollygagging, and postponing. Yep, he sounds like our kind of guy. Let's welcome John Perry. How are you? Uh, well, I'm I'm glad to be on your program. Thanks a lot. Oh, uh, let me make a small correction. I didn't win a Nobel Prize in literature. I won an Ig Nobel Prize in literature. <laughs> Just as prestigious according to me, but a little bit different. Well, we were going to get around to correcting that, but uh, we did, we just oh, didn't okay. get it done in time. But we are so <laughs> glad that you rushed to get this book out just a decade and a half in the making. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> finally I had a lot of other important stuff to do, a couple books for 
uh, Oxford Press on serious philosophy, so it gave me a good opportunity to work on this instead. You know, it is interesting, and I guess this is probably the other side of your personality, because as we've noted, you are one of the world's foremost philosophers. You've written books about the existence of God, immortality, some very heavy topics. What about procrastination interests you so much to put some work into it? Well, it actually began on a personal note. I've always been a procrastinator, and I've always felt bad about it, at least up until 1996. I was feeling quite miserable. I had papers to grade and, uh, you know, essays to write, and instead I was, I don't know, working crossword puzzles. And uh, But then I noticed something that, as bad as I felt about being a procrastinator, I seemed to get a lot done. Like you say, I've published a lot of stuff. I've kept myself employed at Stanford, so it's not utter drivel. And uh, around campus, I was known as kind of a go-to kind of guy. So how could it be that uh, I was a procrastinator and still got all this done? So I thought about it, and I realized, well, I'm a structured procrastinator. I do one thing as a way of not doing something else, and thus I get a lot done, even though maybe I don't always get what I'm supposed to get done done. So I wrote a little essay about it in 1996, and I thought that was the end of it. But uh, the essay became very popular, so eventually it turned into a book, and that's a very small book. You know, that's what makes your point of view so different, because you're not trying to cure us from procrastinating. You're actually trying to help us get better at it. Yeah, well, yeah, no, no, I'm really not. uh, First of all, you know, if you look in the popular press or the psychology today, and you can find lots of articles that will make you feel really miserable about being a procrastinator. You know, they'll tell you that you probably drink more than other people, and you probably annoy people more than other people, and you probably put a lot of stress on yourself, and you'll probably die young, and you're probably responsible for the national debt and most of the other ills that beset mankind. But I don't think that's, that's you know, I don't think that's there's much to that. I think if you look back through history and you took out all the novels and pieces of art and poetry and inventions and great ideas that people came up with while they were supposed to be doing something mm-hmm. else, uh, we'd have really impoverished culture. So, so I think procrastinators shouldn't be so hard on themselves. So, so how do you know if you, because now a lot of people are going to hear this and they're going to say, oh man, I can just sit on the couch and watch TV. How do you know if you are actually procrastinating for your benefit or to the benefit of mankind or if you're just being lazy? Well, that's a good point. Now, procrastination is not the same as being lazy, but it's it's compatible with it. So you you want to make sure that you're not a lazy procrastinator, you're a structured procrastinator. Even if you're not working on what you're supposed to be working on, you, you're, you're getting something done. People often tell procrastinators that their problem is they have too much on their plate. If they just had one thing, then they'd get around to it. But that's, that's not true. If the procrastinator has one thing to do, then uh, he'll just lie on the couch as a way of not doing it. So uh, if you're lying on the couch, you're not a structured procrastinator. But if, you, if, you're, if you're getting a lot done, just not what you're supposed to be getting done, then, then you're a structured procrastinator. Hold your head up. You're probably not the worst person in the world. And, and you make a fantastic point when you say that not doing one thing is often an excellent way of doing something else. Well, yeah. Now, you have to be careful. Now, you guys are in broadcasting. Some some professions are very uh, very intolerant of missing deadlines. If I start a lecture uh, three minutes late, uh, that's no big deal. The students probably got there two minutes late. They're probably relieved that I got there a minute after they did. But if you start your radio show three minutes late, your producer is going to have a fit. So uh, if you're a procrastinator, you have to you have to make sure to adjust to the to the to the way you earn your living, and and uh, you, you, even if you have trouble meeting deadlines, you may have to learn to meet them. You know, with a rush of adrenaline and an all-nighter or whatever it takes. You know, I I think from a you know a standpoint of being an entrepreneur, being an author, trying to to, to do something different. Uh, you know, in, in a big picture, what you're doing here is thinking outside of the box. I mean, uh, you you. you if you wrote a book about uh, why you shouldn't be a procrastinator, probably nobody would read it. Uh, is that something that you found in your own experiences that, uh, you know, to, to really get noticed, you, you've got to step outside the box and say things that at least initially shock people? Well, uh, yeah, I, it, that's not something that works very well as a motive because, you know, you say, well, I think I need to think outside the box. But if, in fact, you do think outside the box or, or you get involved in problems that other people haven't thought of yet, that works pretty well. That's worked. 
that's that's when my work has gotten the most attention, although I can't say that anything I've done in philosophy has gotten as much attention as this procrastination book, which is, I don't know, I don't know whether it should be heartening or disheartening. <laughs> hey, listen, it's not very often we get to talk to, to somebody like you, and we have to ask, especially someone who's been married for over 50 years, who's as vibrant and curious as you are about life. What, what are your thoughts on aging, the, the aging process, and how things are changing now? You know, age is kind of melting away into a state of mind. Well, uh, you know, when I, uh, I, I got a letter, or, or rather an email, about uh, 10 years ago after this essay made it onto the Internet, became very popular, and I got a lot of email from people who who thought my idea of structured procrastination fit them, which kind of amazed me. I didn't didn't know that would happen. One was from a woman who said that uh, uh, she was so glad to read my essay for the first time in her life. She'd held her head up, and she could tell her brother, who was always procrastinating, to uh, to get lost. And then she said, "And by the way, I'm 72 years old." Oh wow! And I remember when I read that, I thought, "Geez, she's pretty old." But now I'm 70 years old, and uh, 72 is just two years away. Uh, it doesn't seem all that old. The funny thing about aging is, unless you got some uh, some bad disease or something, you don't feel all that different inside. Uh, if you could avoid looking at yourself in the mirror in the morning, you might uh, you might you might not realize you're getting older at all. Well, there you go. The book is called The Art of Procrastination. i got to tell you what a pleasure it is to visit with Professor John Perry. Be sure to pick up the book, if not today, then I guess, you know, whenever you get around to it. But it's a great read about how you can take part of your personality and don't just look at the negative side, but pick up the positive and make the best of what you have. Well, I guess if you say so, you'll have to pack the things and go. That's right, it's the roadie jack. Don't you come back no more, no more, no more. Coming up, a visit with one of the original members of the Lennon Sisters. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. I say that song will never get old when it's sung like that. I'm Mark Middleton, Bill Schaefer, alongside your listening to Growing Boulder. Of course, this is a show that focuses on hope, inspiration, and possibility that exist in your life, no matter how unlikely your situation may seem. And we're about to talk to a member of one of the most well-known musical acts ever, something none of them could even imagine. On the Lawrence Welk Show, it was Christmas Eve, 1955. That's when the world first saw the Lennon Sisters. And from there, you know the story. They've sung on countless shows, specials, and at events all over the world. Did you know they're still together, still singing, and still growing bolder? Well, we're thrilled to have the chance to talk to Kathy of the Lennon Sisters. How are you, Kathy? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Oh, your voice has that unmistakable sound of being in Branson, Missouri right now. Is that true? (laughs) I am. It's just gorgeous. The leaves are all turning, and it's still like 78, 80 today, and um, it's absolutely beautiful outside. Wow. Hey, let me take you back a a few years, And, and, and is it true that you guys made that appearance on the Lawrence Welk Show we were talking about because you went to school with his son, and he he thought you guys were pretty hot? For our oldest sister, Dee Dee, um, if they, she was 15 years old. Larry Welk Jr. was 15 years old. We were still, Janet and I were still in grammar school, uh, but we were singing at church 
functions and for the Lions Club and the Rotary Club, things like that, trying to um, add a dormitory onto our house. We were eight children and our mom and dad and grandmother living in a two-bedroom house. And so uh, we were doing little functions for $5 here and $10 little dollars here. And Dee Dee, we had to sing one night. Larry asked her to a party, and uh, he said, I'll come pick you up afterwards. Heard us sing. Again, he's only 15. He said, oh, I'm going to tell my dad about you. And then he called us about three weeks later and said, my dad's homesick with the cold. I've been bugging him about you. Quick, get over here and sing for him. So we, Daddy rounded us up. We went up to Mr. Welk's house in California in Brentwood, and he walked out in this maroon smoking jacket, beautiful silk with velvet slippers. It was like going to a movie star's home, and never forget it. And he looked at us, and he said, my son told me about you. Now sing now. And so we hit a note on the piano. We sang a spiritual called He, and he said, will you be on my Christmas show this year? And we were on Christmas Eve 1955, and we were on every week after that for 13 years. And how old were you at the time, Kathy? I was 11 years old. 11 years old, and I I can do the math. Uh, And and i got to ask you, because we've got to be honest with with our audience here. Are are you the original Kathy Lennon? Because you you sound like you're... This is our 50, we're finishing up our 56th year in in show business. Again, people think we must be in our 80s or our 90s, but we started so young, and we still tap dance and and sing and have energy, and um, it's just uh, an incredible thing. After our show, we go, wow, where does this all come from? Well, you sound like you're 25, which is why I asked the question. I figured you had to be some young starlet they hired to impersonate, Kathy. You should see her, Mark. very much. No, we are the original. (laughs) You know, another thing... we talk all the time about how tabloidy the media is today. You guys were a huge target back then in TV and movie mags almost every issue. Did that become a burden or did you like it? Well, you know, it's an incredible story uh, because it was exactly like what the star is today and uh, all of those. And we were in every movie magazine cover that ever was for probably 10, 15 years. And our brothers, uh, interesting, our, our brothers, Pat and Kip Lennon, uh, they are traveling with Roger Waters, on, on, and sing, they're singers also, and they're tra- traveling with the wall. And they go to Washington, D.C., and they go to the Smithsonian, and under Icon 60s um, uh, rock and roll, uh, they have records, and they have all this, and then they have movie magazines, and they have the Beach Boys, the Beatles, Elvis, and the Lennon sisters. Wow. And I, we just went, wow, we are in a great company there at the Smithsonian. But we were. We were the tabloid kids. And um, different than young kids today that get hit with it so terribly, we were grounded. We ended up, there were 12 children in our family with mom and dad and our grandmother. And we would sing on Ed Sullivan or sing on Perry Como, sing on Andy Williams' show, come home, change our little brothers and sisters' diapers, do our homework. We went to uh, Catholic schools, grammar school and high school. We stayed grounded because our, our show business career and our singing really didn't define us. We were just kids from a big family that sang and my girlfriends worked at Newberry's or Walgreens and I worked at ABC Studios. And it was a tribute to our mom and dad with keeping us um, so that family was the most important thing and that if, you know, your career didn't happen, it was nothing any of us had zeal for. It was never something we all wished for, we wanted. It just fell into our laps. And here we are 56 years later saying, what do you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> and, Kathy, that's the point. You don't have to do it. You could live in some chalet in Switzerland the rest of your days. But here you are performing with the passion and excitement that you had when you were a, a young girl. Well, you know, our, our older sister, Diane and Peggy, they both retired. They're happy and healthy and enjoying their life. We pulled up from the bullpen our sister, Mimi, who has filled in for years. Every time anybody had a baby, Mimi would fill in. She'd go to Caesar's Palace with us and everything, our younger sister. And she's now been singing with us. This is her 14th Christmas season here with Janet and with me. And it's the same Lennon sound, and she brings youth and fun and the same kind of gowns. And and our show here in Branson is people would love it. It's very traditional, uh, like you would see the old Christmas shows on TV. Um, That's what's great about Branson is, you can take a two-year-old and you can take a 92-year-old to every single show and no one's going to be offended. Um, and it's just, it's old, 
wonderful traditional Christmas songs. Janet Janet has actually three three little granddaughters that sing and dance with us, and it's um, the family tradition goes on, and it it just brings back all these memories to so many people. Um, after every show, uh, Mark and Bill, we always sign autographs, take pictures, visit with the people, and hear these stories, and they almost always have tears in their eyes. People just say it brings back such memories of a simpler time, and we would sit and watch TV with our grandparents or our mom and dad, and they'd set our hair for church the next morning. And All these stories just go on and on and on, and we are honored by the loyalty of our fans, and we still enjoy it. And you know, it may be an old-style show, but there is nothing old about it when you go watch the Lennon Sisters because you can see the passion, you can see the energy, and the talent at the same time. Still performing, still delighting audiences, and still proving that age is no barrier when it comes to great entertainment. Keep up with what they're up to at LennonSisters.com. What a great visit with Kathy Lennon. Don't you treat him so mean, you're the meanest old woman he's ever seen. But I guess if you say so, he'll have to pack the things and go. That's right, hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back no more. What you say, hit the road, It is amazing how fast this show can fly by when you're talking about ways to put the spark back in your life. From guests who prove that hope and inspiration are qualities that never fade to those who prove that opportunities are out there and that no matter what your circumstance, there are changes you can make to have a more vibrant and fulfilling life. Good news is the fun doesn't stop here because in the coming weeks you'll hear from more people who are not just talking the talk but actually living their lives in ways that defy conventional wisdom. People who are getting every drop out of life that they can. People who are still setting goals, breaking records, and seeking new adventures. And the really good news is any of our guests could be you if you just get out there and start growing bolder. So why don't you give it a try? Because you might just like it. You know, sometimes in life, all you need is just a little boost to take that first step down the road that you've always really wanted to take. So don't wait any longer, folks. Start growing bolder, and we'll see you right back here real soon. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to Growing Boulder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Crimson.